0: Hello and welcome everybody to this week's edition of Sustainability Now. I'm Justin Mogg, a programmer here on Forward Radio, WFMP LP Louisville. We broadcast out of the historic Habern Building at 106.5 FM and we live stream to the world at forwardradio.org and that's the place to go to become a part of this community radio station. We really want you to be behind the microphones with us or possibly behind the scenes as a volunteer. You can do all that by going to forwardradio.org, click on participate. You could pitch us a program today, maybe your new year's resolution this year is to help out with forward radio maybe you've got an issue or a community you want to highlight Uh, you want to do some citizen journalism it could even be a one-time access hour whatever you're interested in doing go to forwardradio.org and let us know and also chip in a few bucks to help keep us on the air in 2021 it only takes 20 dollars a day to keep this great community treasure going so consider a donation at forwardradio.org Well, what we've been doing here on Sustainability Now in recent months is doing some profiles of Kentuckians who have been serving at some point in their lives in the Peace Corps. And I'm really excited to get a friend in the studio. We're all masked up and spritzed down. The pandemic is not over, but we're taking precautions here at Forward Radio. And my friend who served in Bulgaria is Patrick Erdley. Welcome, Patrick. Hi, thanks for having me. It's so great to have you in the studio. A college DJ back in the day, so you'll hear yeah. his his dulcet tones, and too bad we don't have music from Bulgaria to, to spin today. Patrick is a Louisville native, and he served in the Peace Corps from 2006 to 2008. He loved Bulgaria and a Bulgarian so much that he returned to the country in 2009 and was there through 2012 writing a book, a travel guide to Bulgaria. You can still find it. It's published in 2012. It's called Bulgaria, the Other Places Travel Guide. And he also wrote a blog about riding public transportation in yeah, yeah, yeah. in the Bulgarian capital of Sofia. We're gonna we're gonna dive deep into that topic. I think
1: I enjoyed writing the blog more than the book. <laughs> I really, I yeah.
0: did. So if you want to play along at home, you can go check it out now. It's at Sophia. Sofia S O F I A publictransportation dot But we'll talk about that more in a minute. Uh, and and just to wrap up the introduction. Uh, Patrick is back here in Louisville these days working for Big Brothers Big Sisters as their program engagement manager so he works with people who want to donate stuff to help out Big Brothers Big Sisters you want to talk briefly about that
1: yeah yeah sometimes so Big Brothers Big Sisters is a mentoring organization and we work with youth between the ages of 7 and 16 and we pair them up with positive adult role models and the commitment for volunteers they really are expected to meet with their young person that they're they're working with two to four times a month and really there's there's a lot of room for creativity and how you spend your time together. You could go out and take a walk in the park. You could go have lunch together. If they have certain things that they want to work on, if they express interest to you, that's always a possibility as well. So it's just a chance to sort of give back in person to the community. Yeah. And the the pandemic's been really interesting with how we run our program, oh but gosh, it's, I imagine. it's still up and running. And, and actually really? we have quite a few kids on the waiting list. We have about 500 kids who are waiting for a big brother or a big sister. We have a special need for big brothers. We have more female volunteers than male volunteers that make inquiries with us. So we have quite a few little brothers that are waiting for a big brother. So so if that's something that you're interested in all you have to do is just call our office and make an inquiry and they'll assign you to an orientation it's all online at this point and then you can take it from there and see if it's a good fit for you
0: Can I ask a question about this? And I think you might especially be knowledgeable about it. How does Big Brothers Big Sisters deal with transgender issues?
1: Well, actually we're really open. So, you know, we are an all accepting organization. Yeah. For us, if the gender you identify with is male, then you're a big brother. If the gender you identify with is female, then you're a big sister, it's that simple.
0: So So. both for the big and the littles, it's however you identify.
1: How you identify, yeah.
0: Well, and then there's non binary. So is there a whole non binary bigs and littles?
1: Well, I think we take it on a case by case basis. Okay. <laughs> so I mean, you know, I I wouldn't say that we have such a large number of inquiries yeah, You know, probably. from people that, you know, identify that way. Yeah. But you know, it's a case by case basis and you know, we're really we try very hard to match people up with families that would be accepting of that. Right. And in my experience, most people are. Yeah. So it, it's all very personal. And you know, and that's because when in creating the relationship between the bigs and the littles, every person's an individual and yeah. every match looks different. And yeah. And how how they spend their time together is different and the needs of the kids are different and, and the ways the volunteers can give back. You know, you have your, your whole personality and, and your experiences and that's what we want you to share with them is, is yeah. your expertise in life. And, yeah. and so, you know, I, I would say if you feel the calling to be, you know, a big in our program, definitely sign up.
0: You know, I work at UofL and and back in the fall, I saw something going on while I was waiting for food pickup at a restaurant. And I'm like, I thought of you because I was like, I bet that's a big brother. <laughs> I bet L students do it as, as a volunteer, right? There's one fraternity
1: and, that, yeah, it's, we're their charity of choice, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's interesting. Yeah. Suddenly it all came together for me because I've never really, I wasn't involved in big brothers, big sisters at any point in my life. So I, I don't know what it looks like, but then I, when you see it, you know it. So the one last question I had, about this is how do the kids come into the program? Like, do their how do they end up in the program?
1: Their parents sign them up, or their caregiver, or uh, we have a lot of grandparents yeah. where they're the custodial guardians. Okay. You know, the criteria to be in our program as a young person is just that you want to be, and that you, you have to have some sort of um, there's a certain level of independence. You have to be able to go to the bathroom by yourself because you, the kids have to be out, you know, with their volunteers. Yeah. And our volunteers aren't necessarily like professional social workers or or healthcare aides. You know, they're just volunteers from the community. So, but that's that's also part of you know when the kids come into the program, they attend an orientation with their parents as well. And we kind of tell them about what the program's about and that gives them a chance to assess whether it's a good fit for them as well.
0: Okay, cool. So is there an age range?
1: Seven to 16. So we, seven
0: um, 16, you
1: know, enough. you can stay in our program until you graduate high school or until you turn 18, whatever happens last. But even in some certain cases, if you want to remain connected with us till 21. Huh. But <laughs> cool. we, we, we really, you know, once the kids start turning like 17, 18, you know, for us, you have to be able to be in the program for a year. So at yeah. 17, you know, that would be the latest we would enroll them because then right. they would graduate a year later.
0: And have you ever seen kids turn around and become mentors? Yes. In their future life? That's yes. Cool. And we had
1: one match where they both became mentors to... Oh, that's so cool. a third little, which was interesting. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sometimes right. it does happen.
0: Is there a website people can go to learn more about Big Brothers, Big Sisters? Yes.
1: It's www.bbbsky.org. And we serve both counties in southern Indiana and in
0: central Kentucky. BBB sky.org is a place to go but we are not here today to talk about big brothers big sisters I, that was a little fun sidebar uh, we're talking about the peace corps and international issues so 2006 you're going off to bulgaria tell us your story about why you chose peace corps what made you think this was a great idea
1: I got a story. So, okay, okay,
0: okay.
1: I first heard about Peace Corps when I was in college. I went to the University of Iowa, and it was my nonfiction writing teacher. Her name was Erica. And Erica, she had been a Peace Corps volunteer in Africa, and she helped midwives deliver babies. And in Africa, she was in a country where they did female—what's um, the word I'm looking for? Uh, circumcision.
0: Genital mutilation. Genital man. mutilation. So FGM. Mm. The,
1: the a really horrific part about the genital mutilation is scar tissue happens. And so yeah. whenever you go to deliver a baby, your parts don't expand Yeah, like they naturally naturally would because of that scar tissue oh, and no. so she said sometimes the babies would come out and their heads would be misshapen and she these women would have to like reform parts of their skull back into place and she's telling me this and I'm like that's really intense. I don't know if I could handle that. But then that was the first time I'd heard about the Peace Corps. And she wrote about it. So that was her thing. She wrote about these experiences working with these these midwives who just had to you know, do what they had to do wow. to, to make sure that for the well-being of these kids. Brilliant. Really um, wow. And so I can't remember her last name. If I would have prepared, <laughs> I would have brought it cause I'm pretty sure that she's also a published author. And, oh, wow. And so that was where it came to a realization. I was like, that sounds like something I would want to do. Not necessarily help deliver babies, but, you know, serve in a foreign country. Yeah. Then a couple years later, my uncle passed away and my uncle was it was my mom's older brother and we were going through some of his things and I found a letter from 1967 oh my gosh. where he had been rejected from the Peace Corps. So he had applied <laughs> and they didn't accept him. I'm, I, don't, I have a suspicion why, but probably I don't want to say it. But, um, <laughs> but he kept the letter. It was important to him. He kept it like what? Like, what was that, 40 years? Because yeah. he died in 2005. And so I was like, OK, OK. I think this is a sign that this is something that I should do. And so I huh. called and scheduled an interview and, and then uh, went through the interview process. And then uh, they approved me. I had to, oddly enough, that's how I also got involved with Big Brother's. Big Sister, because I was a big brother before I worked there. Oh. And before I went to Peace Corps, I, I was a big brother for two years. When initially, when I um, applied to the Peace Corps, the recruiter told me, he's like, you should have some more volunteer experience. You know, you need to have some more community volunteer yeah. experience that would help you. So because my aunt, who worked in the Habern building, maybe on this floor even, <laughs> her kids were in the program. My cousins were in the program. So that's how I knew about Big Brothers Big Sisters. I see. So I was like, okay, some volunteer experience. That's what I'll do. I'll sign up for Big Brothers Big Sisters. So I was a big brother for two years. And then my match ended when I moved overseas. So in the interview process process... process at that time they asked you where you wanted to go you could give up to like five different countries initially i wanted to go to tanzania or southern part of africa i don't know it was just something like you know like the mystique and it was sure uh, in the nature and just like a completely different climate yeah and then because i worked in a restaurant with a bulgarian lady whose name was ganka and she'll come back later i put down bulgaria and wow. so then I got my offer. I, they accepted me and they're like, we're going to send you to, because you didn't have a choice They you, you could give them suggestions of places you wanted to go, but they decided in the end. And, and I was fine with that. You had to be okay with that. You knew that when you were applying. So of course they called me and they're like, well, we're going to send you to Bulgaria. And I was like, Ooh, okay. Completely different than Tanzania, but whatever. I knew anything <laughs> about Bulgaria. I just knew, I knew what the lady that I worked with at the restaurant, Ganka had told me. So yeah, so I went in 2006 wow. and I was a youth development volunteer. So because I had had experience working with youth, that was the program they placed me in a different countries have different programs just depending on what the need is so in Bulgaria there was uh, teaching English as a foreign language and then there was uh, community development which could be you know working with like libraries or community organizations but there was like a business component to it and then there was youth development where you were working directly with like
0: young people so it's not... We've had a lot of teachers on the mm-hmm. show. I wasn't a teacher. Um, so, I did some
1: teaching, but I wasn't a teacher.
0: Okay. Was your work connected with schools, or was it totally extracurricular?
1: It's cool, because Bulgaria, when it was a socialist country and it was communist, every town had, like, the same sort of amenities. So they had something called a citalishte, and the Chitalishte predates socialism in Bulgaria. Uh-huh. It was something that came out of their cultural revolution in the 1800s when Bulgaria became its own country again, after having been a part of the Ottoman Empire. So the Chitaliste translates kind of like reading room, but it's in essence like a library slash community center. And so every every town has a citalishte, even small villages, you know, they have one. And so a lot of the youth, YD volunteers, the youth development volunteers, they would be placed with like citalishte, and they would work with like the person that ran that organization and, and did those like extra youth development programs. Sometimes it would be like folk dancing classes, or oh. sometimes they would do like, there would be English teaching, you know, like maybe the kids wouldn't pay for it, they would just come to the Chitaliste and it was pretty informal. Because um, they
0: weren't getting English in their formal school
1: sometimes oh, sometimes okay. bulgaria has like in europe they have specialized high schools so there was like the math school where they did a lot of math or there was the culinary arts high school where you could go sort of like magnet programs Yeah, like a magnet. but they would have english schools too where you would go and, and the instruction would be like in english and it would be in bulgarian
0: huh. wow so, did you end up doing just a broad range of activities with these kids? And mm-hmm. what ages were we talking about?
1: I was a little more unique because in Bulgaria you did three months of initial training. That's where you learn the language, and so you were placed in a village with a host family. My host family didn't speak English. They were in their like late seventies. I had the oldest host parents of anybody in my group, which I was fine. with. They were fantastic people. They were lovely.
0: The babushkas. Right? Well, she was
1: Lelia and uh, Chicho. So obviously, my father's brother and sister is kind of what I would refer to them as. Because in Bulgaria, you have there's all these like really intricate terms for like. Members of your family, Uh so the uncle of the brother of your mother has a different name than the brother of your father. But Uh apparently, Lelia and Chicho were my brothers, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) my father's brother and sister. So I live with them, and then afterwards they would place you in your permanent site. So our training coordinator, she was like, "Well, you know, where do you want to go?" They would also take things into consideration, but you couldn't request where to be sent because everybody would just go to the beach. Um, (laughs) So I was like, "Well, I'm going to go somewhere with a philharmonic, a philharmonic orchestra." I don't know why I thought of that, and she's like, "Okay, so that's where I ended up going. Went to Veden. So I went to like the." farthest possible place away from the beach that's where they sent me I worked with the Roma population. So Bulgaria oh, is, yeah. there's a lot of ethnic diversity in Bulgaria. They're, yeah. they're, they're Bulgarians and they're Slavic. They identify as Slavic. Bulgarians a Slavic language. They use a Cyrillic alphabet, it's similar to Russian, similar to Ukrainian. The Slavic languages are very close. So they're a lot similar to like Italian and Spanish, only more so because even going to Serbia, Serbian is, Serbo-Croat is a different language than Bulgarian, but I can understand substantial amounts of it. Same with Russian. You know, when I hear Russian people speak, now the grammar is more complicated than Russian, but I can understand a lot of the base words are the same. Huh. Polish is is like the most different to me. I can't understand anything, but huh. Russian is is a little closer. But then there's also a Turkish population, Turkish Bulgarian, and those are people that have lived there for centuries. You know, Bulgaria touches the European part of Turkey, and, yeah. and you know, from the 1400s until the 1870s, Bulgaria was part of the Ottoman Empire. So, in yeah. and, and the Turkish people, the Ottomans considered Bulgaria like Turkey. You know, they they consider that part of their their realm, and the Bulgarian culture survived. Primarily in small mountain villages, you know the the Turkish people were, had the huge estates and the farms. Oh. They were tobacco farmers, so that oh, was that like was like Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> and there, there's a huge Turkish now. The Turkish, the Bulgarian, it's contentious. It's a contentious relationship because the Bulgarians have their own national identity. They see themselves as Bulgarians. They don't see themselves as Turkish people. And so, as a byproduct of their of their independence, there was sort of like a backlash against things Turkish, you sure, know. And sure. so there is some xenophobia there. I you know keep in mind, and I talked to Todor. Todor is my husband. And he's Bulgarian, and I guess you'll ask me about that later. But he's like, keep in mind that you're also thinking about Bulgaria ten years ago, and that things are a little bit different now. Right. But the Turkish community in Bulgaria especially in the 80s had it tough when it was communist there was this push to Bulgarianize uh <laughs> Turkish people so the governor of Bulgaria actually mandated that they change their name to Bulgarian names so if your oh, name was like really? Mustafa you had to change it to Mikhail you know you had there was an approved list of Bulgarian names that were wow. culturally Bulgarian wow. and, and, and that's really hard and so that forced a migration of about and I don't know I don't have the correct numbers but it's like a half a million people left Bulgaria and then we went to Turkey and then that hurt their economy because Bulgaria produced a lot of the cigarettes and the tobacco for the so Socialist countries in the, in the Soviet bloc, sure. and so then you don't have the tobacco farmers there anymore. Then ah, that that's that was a drawback. But there's other ethnic groups within Bulgaria. There's people called the Pomaks, which means helpers, and they were ethnic Bulgarians, Slavic Bulgarians. They live in the Radope mountains, which is in the south part of the country. They converted to Islam during the Ottoman Empire, and so they have a their own sort of identity. And Bulgarians feel a certain way about them, but you know there's not that many of them. They they just live sort of like in the mountains so in, in these small villages. And then the last group is the Roma, which are Yes. Gypsies. You know, Roma is the preferred term. There are different groups of gypsies across Europe. There's uh, there's the Shinty. They're uh, in Spain and Portugal. They're of course the English travelers, and then you have the Roma, and those are the Gypsies that live in Eastern Europe. And so I worked in the Roma community center. and Viden had a pretty large Roma population. They had their own sort of neighborhood outside of the edge of town, and they had their own school. And uh, I mean, it was very separate. It was very Roma people lived here. They lived in uh, the Roma part of the city, and then the Bulgarians lived over here. And um, it was very segregated. And wow. so I lived in the Bulgarian part, and then I would ride a bus and, or ride my bike <laughs> after cross I got the one. Track. It was across the tracks. It was like, and there was a wall. And it was like, it was all very intentional, you know? Wow. And, and my counterpart's name was Rusin, and he's fantastic. I worked for a non-governmental organization called the Free Youth Center. And the director was a Bulgarian guy. He was the former, like, director at the high school. I've been working with young people. But he, you know, he had this organization, and part of the work that they did was they were bringing some of this, like, educational and cultural programming to the Roman neighborhood. And so I was a part of that. And and there were also other European volunteers. There's a, there's a program. Called European Voluntary Service, which is similar to Peace Corps. Yeah. And told her my husband was later a volunteer after all of this in Poland. But uh, oh so I, there, I always had another European there with me. Uh, there was my friend Paolo, who was Italian. We had Liene from Latvia. We had uh, Linda from Latvia. We had two wow. Latvians. And it was fun. It was like, it was a really cool, like, cross cultural moment. And then we got to work with these kids, and the kids were just, they were great. They were just, you know, I've worked in Bulgaria, I worked with the Roma. They were probably, it's the most marginalized community in the country. And then later, I worked in a, in a private school in the capital, and I worked with the children of, like, you know, one of the Supreme Court justices of Bulgaria. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. you know, the one thing that I, I know. From years of working with kids, that kids are kids, no matter where, where you grow up here, grow up there. There's a similarity that's universal among all the kids, you know, and I and I enjoy and they were fantastic. They were lovely children. And it was cool to see, like, you know, the Bulgarians have this really strong sense of identity and culture. And they're very proud to be Bulgarian. But the Roma are also proud to be Roma. And there's this whole like context there and and you know sometimes there are some cross lines between Bulgarians and Roma and but and, you know like you kind of just have to let their culture happen <laughs> yeah exactly you know but you know <laughs> i i to used to hear it. a lot of really negative things about you know roma people and roma people are like this and roma people are like that and i'm like well my counterpart who is also roma has a PhD and lives in Germany and speaks six languages. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. there, there's an example right there if you need one of someone that might surprise you. You know, we, I still keep up with him, you know, social media. And he's a fantastic person. He's a, he's a great man. Wow. Really cared about the kids too, you know?
0: Yeah. I'm speaking today with a Louisville native, Patrick Erdley, who uh, served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Bulgaria doing youth development uh, work in uh, 2006 to 2008. This is a part of a series I've been doing on this program with uh, Kentucky Returned Peace Corps volunteers. And now Patrick helps lead our little Louisville Return Peace Corps volunteer group. There's a bunch of us return volunteers in Kentucky, mm-hmm. huh? And
1: there's several Bulgarian RPCVs, too, which is interesting because oh. there's, there's not that... I mean, Bulgaria is the size of Ohio, and yeah. there's 7 million people. And in my group, there might have been 40 people from across the country. <laughs> wow. And there were two from Kentucky, me and another volunteer named Robert. But then moving back, I, I found there's like five or six of us that live here, which is really interesting, including... And this is how small the world is. I was in Sofia after I... I had completed my service. I was living there on my own, living in the capital, and I would still like hang out with some of the part- Peace Corps volunteers. In Bulgaria, it, when you were a serving volunteer, nobody ever placed you in Sofia. Sofia yeah. was a world city. You know, was the capital, so they they had services. Most of the volunteers were in small towns. So of course, when they knew that there was a guy that used to be a Peace Corps volunteer and he was in Sofia, people would be like, "Oh, can I come stay with you while I'm doing this thing?" Yeah, exactly. You know, and I enjoyed that. <laughs> like like you know, hanging out with the Americans, it was fun. So I went to this bar with a bunch of the PCVs in Sofia, and I'm there, and there's a girl from Louisville, and I was like, oh, okay. And then like we're talking, and I was like, wait a minute. This is the little sister of the girl I took <laughs> to junior prom. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> it was wow. her. And small it was like, world. what a small world. <laughs> and... Yep. So we're still friends. She's here now.
0: That's so cool.
1: So there's a couple of us.
0: All right, now you've you've already hinted at this, so let's let's dive right into it. The story of your husband Todor and your story of sponsoring him to come to the US yeah, yeah. once the Defense of Marriage Act was repealed. Tell us about that.
1: That's it's interesting. I met Todor in 2007. So uh, my friend Dan, who was another Peace Corps volunteer that was in a like a village outside of my site, he became friends with this guy that I had a language school, and he's like, hey, why don't you all come to this banquet where we're gonna graduate all these people from uh-huh. their like first like three months of English class, and then they can we're gonna spread you out, and they can talk to you and Dan and my other friend Elizabeth, and you know it'd be a good chance for them to practice their English. And at this point, like I lived in a town where if once you turned 18, you left because there were no jobs. So like the people that I. Could interact with or become friends with were either like high school kids which I was like
0: or they were like
1: over 40 and had kids you know so I was like that wasn't really I was 26 there wasn't a demographic and there certainly wasn't any dating going on so I was like I was single so I went to this banquet and then I sat across from this guy and I was like wait a minute this guy's not bad looking and I was like and he might be gay and so I was like I don't know anything about gay dating in Bulgaria but I was like but I was like okay
0: so 10 years ago how closeted is Bulgaria Bulgarian gay life. Um, I don't know. I mean,
1: I mean, it's there. It's out in the open. Okay. I mean, they have gay bars in Sofia. They really? had gay bars then in Sofia. They okay. had their first Pride parade when I was there. Wow. And it, that might have been 2010. And there was a group of counter protesters, or people that didn't support the Gay Pride Parade, and they ended up throwing rocks at people, and so you had to wear hard hats. That's what wow. I remember. Is that but because I didn't it's, participate a very, that.
0: it's a very Catholic and religious country? Or? Uh,
1: Bulgarian Orthodox. Bulgarian Orthodox. They are Orthodox, Eastern okay. Orthodox. They're very proud of that.
0: Okay, okay. Um, so, so somewhat closeted, but you could still, you could yeah, still find yeah, yeah. folks. I
1: mean, they were. I mean, and you know, if you if you were looking for it, it was there. I mean, there were cruising spots for sure. Okay. And a little plug here, if you are interested in <laughs> what being gay in Bulgaria was like ten years ago, and this is just another one of those small world moments. My friend Garth Greenwell is an author. He also lives in Iowa City, where I went to school at the University of Iowa. But he also lived in Sofia the same time I lived in Sofia. And he's from Louisville, which is like so weird. He wrote a book. It's called What Belongs to You. And it's pretty popular. I mean, it's been on the New York Times bestseller list. So he's just released his second book. Which is another, I think, a group of short stories about living in Bulgaria, living in living in Louisville. But he's, you know, he's an accomplished writer. He's he writes great stuff. And, cool. and what's really interesting is like, I also met him while I was living in Sofia, and we were at a party, and I was like, oh, I'm from Louisville. He's like, I'm from Louisville. And I was like, oh. And then it turned out we also like went to the same high school. And I was like, oh, what a small world this is. So it's like you meet people from back home halfway across the world. But then he he talks a little bit about what it was like in in the book. He goes to this um, place called the Palace of Culture, which is this huge like convention center where the tv station is and there are these like seedy bathrooms that are in the like in the underpass underneath it wow and that's that was traditionally one of the like you know people knew about it cruising spots where okay. you could go and like you know pick somebody up or but it was still very much like it like gay life is much like it was here you know in the 70s and 80s you, you know there were you yeah. knew where to go to like hang out and meet other people so. right right but I met Tilder. I met Tilder at the banquet. And, and so I went outside. He went outside to smoke. And I was like, well, this guy is the same age as me. So even if he's not gay, at least I can like make a friend my own age. Yeah. So we went outside and I smoked. And, and at this point, my language skills weren't very good. And he couldn't really speak English very well. But I was like, hey, I'm having a party. Uh? Why don't you come to my party? And he's like, OK. And so it was a Eurovision party, the song contest.
0: Yes, yes. <laughs> so yes. he came to the party.
1: And that's how we met.
0: Cool. So when did the, when did the marriage happen?
1: OK, so we, we dated for about a year and a half while. I lived there as a Peace Corps volunteer, and then at that point, my stepfather passed away when I was in Bulgaria, and so oh, I wow, came back for cool. a year and stayed with my mom. And and I, I mean, I just I didn't have a plan. I know what I was doing, but then after a year, I was like, you know what, I want to go back, and there's unfinished business here, and and I cared about Todor. He was, I mean, it was like he was important to me. Yeah. So we moved back, and and I ended up, whoo, it it was a very ninety day fiance. So here's my tip: <laughs> if you were going somewhere with no plans of returning. <laughs> Still buy a return ticket. Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise they're not going to let you in. Which almost right. happened. I stopped, I, my, I got routed through Italy, and in the airport the guy's like, "But you don't have a return ticket." And I was like, "Oh, well, you know, like I used to live there, and I have some friends. Yeah. And I'm just going to like bounce around a little bit, and then I'm just <laughs> going to decide where I land, and then you know, take a plane trip back." And, and it, I don't know what this guy worked, and he let me in. So um, <laughs> I came back. I came to Bulgaria with a one way ticket, and then I had 90 days. And I love the show 90 Day Fiance. We watch this because it's like we we have like the direct experience of what this is like. And but those people that's a different show so so I had to get a job and I had to have my employer sponsor me in those 90 days which oh was kind of tough because it's like in Bulgaria they don't want to give jobs to people who aren't Bulgarians and that's most countries they want the you know the job to go to the people that yeah. live there. And so I had to demonstrate a skill that no other Bulgarian had to get a job. So I ended up, I just looked online and I applied to this like kindergarten and the lady was like, yes, we'll hire you. Definitely. Wow. You know, and she had, she had an American partner that worked there. I guess oh, her husband okay. did something with overseas business or whatever. And and so uh, they ended up hiring me then paid me like a local wage. But at that point, I was like, you know, the point of this is I'm here to live with Todor. And, yeah. and so I started working at the kindergarten and she sponsored me. But there was some sort of mix up where like I had to leave the country while the paperwork process. Right, and I ended up right. going and, like staying with my friend Liz in, in Serbia for like 30 days uh-huh. wearing like a sweatshirt and Chuck Taylor's under two feet of snow and <laughs> sleeping in her like studio apartment on a beanbag chair. So that was that was a, there was a month of that but she taught me how to cook this really great dish with lentils. She's cool. She's very she's also from Louisville oh, which wow. is yeah we're everywhere oh, wow. and, uh, and this will finally I got sponsored by my employer and then I, I worked at the kindergarten for three years and three then, years wow. for three years and we had this great apartment and um, it was sort of like I guess the Shively of Sofia. We were across from the park but it was it was <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I love my little
0: apartment. So you got married over in Bulgaria. No, 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 no. no. They don't.
1: They're not about that. Yeah, I think that. so. So what the, happened? Well, at some point, I came up to renew my green card, my Bulgarian green card, which is was a blue card. It wasn't a green card. It was blue. And I decided, like, I just there there comes a point where you live in a culture that's not your own for so long that it starts to being like I need to go back. I need to experience of my own culture for a change. It's just when you live in a foreign country and you're like you're you're always on. It's yeah. like there's always the switch that's flipped on because yeah. people no matter how and it's like every time you meet somebody new they want to ask you like a million questions and because i could speak bulgarian bulgarians who had never been able to meet a foreigner before they didn't speak another language they could suddenly ask me all these really personal questions you know so i got a lot of really funny things like there was a lady on the train once that when she found out i spoke bulgarian was like shocked and handed me like this wedge of feta cheese that she had made and we <laughs> ate it quietly on the train but she kept asking me questions so then i came back here but Todor her couldn't come with me i wasn't legally allowed to sponsor him for a green card that was not allowable for gay couples at that time. and because of the Defense of Marriage Act, which many of our currently serving representatives were on board with., yes. so keep that in mind. Yes. take a look back, see who yeah. voted for it. Mm-hmm. It might make a difference. Mm-hmm. So why we, we, well, don't know, we just we just did it. I mean, like I lived here, he lived there. We, we use a lot of Skype. And, you know, I was keeping my fingers crossed. It was either like it came down to a point where things would either get better for us. They would repeal the Defense of Marriage Act, which there were like rumblings about that. Like I knew that was a possibility when I moved back. Sure. Or we could try to move to a third country where he could live. Uh, Bulgaria was a European Union country, so we could live to any of the European Union countries. Okay. Some of them did allow gay marriage, so that could have been a pathway for us. Another choice would be that I go back to Bulgaria and try to find another job. But I don't know. So in 2014, they repealed the of Marriage Act. And Yay. then we were able to start the visa process. So um, within a month, you were able to start it. But at that point, he was volunteering. Because I was like, listen, if you're not able to come here, go do something. Like, go live your life. Yeah, yeah. And so he became a European Voluntary Service volunteer in Poland and worked with kids in the youth center there. And so whenever they repealed the Defense of Marriage Act, he was in Poland. So it didn't make sense for us to start right away. He ended up getting here in February of 2015. And we got married in March. We had 90 days to get married. We got married in 30 days, though, because
0: we didn't have to question it, it Yeah, exactly. And he was the first Bulgarian to be sponsored. (laughs) He
1: was the first Bulgarian to be sponsored for a same-sex K-1 visa oh. to the United States. Wow! Now, there were other... We weren't the first couple to get married that was binational. There were already Bulgarians here on, like, different visas, B visas, student visas, and they they got married right away. But he was the first Bulgarian that the U.S. Embassy processed the K-1 visa for him to come here. And that's really cool. I mean, they and they were very excited about it. They, You know, he's like, he went to the interview at the embassy, and they were just like, he was like a little celebrity. They were like, <laughs> finally, you know? And they asked him questions about our relationship, showed a couple pictures, and they were like, approved. Really? And then, yeah, it wasn't that difficult, but
0: Was he nervous about it?
1: Um, he was. I mean, you how ha- you can't not be nervous about yeah, it because it's think. a big, you know, you're somebody else's this choices about your life for, you know, they're making decisions for you.
0: Yeah. And and what's I mean, it's hard to summarize the experience since then, but what has been his experience? Are there regrets? What does his family think about all this?
1: It, there's always the burden of being in a binational relationship is you're always going to have the distance. Yeah. And that's hard. That I felt that when I lived there. He feels that living here. Yeah. And we try... He goes back... He goes back about once a year. Uh-huh. And, you know, or we go different... We do different vacations. But he just... He went back in September and was there for a month. And it's... You know, it c has been here, so he came in February of 2015. He had been here twice before. He had a he had a tourist visa that I yeah. had to vouch for, and he was able to come. He just couldn't stay. Okay. So he had come a couple of times before we got married. He's he's a U.S. citizen now. So um, nice. The the quickest way to become a U.S. citizen is through being sponsored by a spouse. Yeah. Um. Family yeah. members take a little bit longer. On average, is about five years. He just got his citizenship in November of 2019. Wow. Um. And then one of our other good Peace Corps friends, Judy Lipman, she uh. So. Uh, we had the ceremony. We go out into the lobby and who's there, the ladies registering you to vote. And it was Judy, <laughs> our friend Judy from Peace Corps. And she Man. registered him to vote. And that was all very touching and, and just very Louisville. Oh, it's wow. like, Oh, I know you.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: <laughs> or we know somebody, you know, in common. That's everybody in the city. So yeah, so he's, he's here now and he's an American and he voted in his first presidential election wow. and was very excited to do that. And oh, and now so he's learning cool. how to drive. <sighs> <laughs> learning how to drive as an adult, you know, it's funny. He's, he's, he has to listen to 90.5, the classical, uh, maybe we'll start putting on 106.5 with some, some calm talk, you there, know, there but you he's like, I can't have anything loud in the car. It stresses me exactly. out. exactly. Oh my God. So hopefully he'll get his license this year.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad you turned to the issue of transportation because I didn't want to leave this conversation without getting back to talk about public transportation and this great blog you put together about riding public transit in the capital of Bulgaria, Uh Sofia. And it's at Sophia, S-O-F-I-A, com. So what motivated you to do this blog?
1: Now, full disclosure, I haven't done anything with a blog since I left the country okay. in 2012. So my last entry is Coming Back to America. I don't know. I was I, I had written the book. I had written the travel guide. And I enjoyed that. I, it was something that I enjoyed doing. And I co-wrote the book with another Peace Corps volunteer named Leslie Sternadel. She lived in San Francisco. She still does live in San Francisco. So we co-wrote sections. I did the section on the Northwest and Sophia. She did other parts where she had been. Sure. But the blog, for me, we were living in Sofia. I, I was just like, you know, I want to do something a little bit different. And I love, I have a fascination with, like, maps and yeah. transportation. And, you know, Sofia has all these really cool old, like, Soviet-built trams. They were built in the Czech Republic. They're bright orange. And they were, like, 30 or 40 years old by the time that I lived there. But they trams, were still up and on, running. Yeah, trams, On rails. On rails, in the street. Sofia the street still cars, had okay. its, like, historical like, and intact tram system. and wow. In socialism, you know, America, you know, we're capitalist country. And it's like, buy, 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 you know? And what can we sell to you? What can we sell that you don't need, you know? yeah America in the 50s and 60s and 70s, it was about cars. Cars are what drove our economy, literally. You know, so everything here post-1950s has been accommodating cars, which I'm like kind of sad about because, like, Louisville used to have a really large and intact tram network, street cars. The last streetcar ran in 1949.
0: Yeah. um,
1: Because General Motors, and this is part of the great General Motors conspiracy, General Motors would and they would buy up all of the rail systems from the cities dismantle them and then uh, replace them with buses but you know keep in mind at that time the trams were seen as something that were antiquated people were like they were ready for the next new thing they were ready for buses they're not ready for buses anymore, but they were no. ready for it then. The buses were seen as something like new and modern, and they uh-huh. were like cheaper to keep up. Let's face it. So Louisville's very extreme tram network got dismantled. The rails are still here; they're under yeah. the street. You it's can see them, whenever see they them when they tear up when the pothole
0: comes up. Yeah, you know.
1: <laughs> and then one of our street cars still runs in San Francisco on Market Street. There's a Louisville Railway car that's there. Wow. Um, and so I, I mean, for me, I, I knew that there were trams here when I was a kid. I, you know, I went to school. Manuel I was downtown. You sometimes you would see the tracks on the street, and I was like, that's cool. It seems so fascinating to me that there there would be this like whole network that you know people just forgot about and wanted to get rid of yeah. and and you can see a lot of the really good pictures the, the L has their photo archives yes. and they're free and they're online I spend a lot of time looking at them I look at all of the old photographs of the city the city used to be so vibrant and dense and mm. you know across the street where there's the Brown Brothers Cadillac parking lot there used to be a cathedral there that had all this beautiful Garthic architecture oh, and wow. then at 4th and Broadway there was a giant arch that covered the street you know wow. like there's all this cool stuff that people don't even realize existed yeah. and you know it was sacrificed fights for urban renewal in, oh, in the 60s right. where they you know <laughs> one side of downtown they bulldoze it for hospitals and then uh, the other side of downtown they they bulldoze the western part of downtown for a civic center that never got really built so you know that's why the federal building's there because that that was planned all of that was planned so sophia had this really i mean it was like for me it was like i could imagine what it was like to be in louisville you know in the 1920s and 30s riding on a streetcar. it was like fascinating and kind of charming to me and I was like, well, you know, Sofia is one of those cities where people come to Sofia on their way to somewhere else. They're either going to, like, Turkey or they're going to the Black Sea, okay. or they're going to Greece, but they're not there to see Sofia. And I was like, well, how can I make it interesting? So what I would do is I would take, and I would choose one one line of transportation. So they have trolley buses, they had streetcars, they had buses, and they had the subway. They built the subway when I was there. Oh, wow. um, so subway, I would yeah. I would ride one line of transit, and I would write about what happened, or where it went, or what I saw, or and I would take pictures. So I think I started with tram number 10, and it was like snowing in the middle of winter, but also it forced me to kind of learn the city of sofia really really well like sure. i knew where, but by the by the time you know i finished the blog like i knew where everything was in the city and all <laughs> these cool little things and you know I, it's like i really enjoyed riding the trams the trams weren't speedy they weren't fast i mean it was way faster if you drove a car but there was something romantic about you know i'm in this car and it's going to go where it goes you can't deviate from those rails yeah. you know like yeah, even yeah. if even can't if you get lost like don't know where you're going eventually the trolley's going to come back yeah. you know there's a tram <laughs> circle it's going to turn around and and that was reassuring it was a reassurance you don't get with a city Bus where once it's done with its line, where where does it drive off to? Who knows? Yeah, the tar exactly. garage. You know, yeah. at least the streetcars, they're always on a line, you know, where they're you know, and then if you're like walking somewhere and you look and it's like, oh look, there's rails in the street. Where does that go? Mm-hmm. Maybe I can wait for a tram to come to take me somewhere. Yeah. That's like that. You
0: don't get that here. And people probably actually use them to get around. They use them, everybody
1: right? uses them. Well, because you know, and that goes back to what I was talking about originally with you know, capitalism and culture and socialism, cars were expensive, and you had to get on a waiting list to buy a car. So people in Bulgaria didn't have cars, they didn't tear down large swaths of the city to Accommodate cars, so everything there is still very dense. And you know, in Sofia, Sofia had a lot of bombing damage in World War II. Bulgaria sided with the Axis nations, oh. um, so they were the capital was bombed. So they there was some some massive rebuilding with the communist government. You know, they they had this tendency to like tear down neighborhoods and build these giant monuments of culture. You know, that was just what they did. But we did it too. I mean, it's it's what happens. It's progress. You know, out with the old and with the new. It's, but Sofia still has this. You know, it's dense. Even with the buildings that were built post 1950s, it's still a very dense city and it's still very walkable and, and that's what i that's what i love about that's what I love about you know, Europe in general is that like yes. everybody has an equal footing and yes. the fact that they can walk everywhere you know yeah. like whether you're you know the poorest of the poor the richest of the rich you can still get out and you can get anywhere you need to go because there's a way to get there and then what, what my husband experienced when coming to America is that and that's why he's having to learn how to drive is he can't get where he needs to go sure. There's even Louisville, even Louisville has a bus system we have public transit but it's not very efficient if you're going from downtown to somewhere else like in and out it's okay, but trying to get from like Valley Station to Fern Creek you have to go through downtown. Yep. Anytime you have to go to any other part of the city that's not downtown, you have to go through downtown.
0: The hub and spoke, yeah. Hub and uh, spoke, yep.
1: And you know, and then sometimes the bus doesn't run, or sometimes it takes three hours to get there. You yeah. know, and it's like that's a commitment. And I knew what that was like because I had a Toyota Camry, and it was like <laughs> one year. I knew I was leaving for Peace Corps in a year, and my car decided to die. Uh-huh. And it was like, well, I can either a buy a new car, or I can just <laughs> deal with it. So I dealt with it because I didn't want to buy another car and then you know leave a year later. So and I, had li- I lived in Old Louisville, so it was easy for me to get places. If I just needed to go in or out, and so I knew what that was like. I knew what it was like to have to bike, and, and I know you don't drive, right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, you bike places, and and people in Louisville, like people in Louisville, like to bemoan the bike lanes, but really, like they're needed and they're necessary because people are not kind to of bicyclists. It's right. like you know, you're going along, you're just you know drinking your coffee, you're There's texting no your friends, yeah. and then you see a bicyclist, and you're like, <laughs> and then you speed up and then you hit Get some bikes. Out of It's my like way. it's like just take it, to chill out, you know? <laughs> Jeez, I'm just I'm on a bike here. If you hit me, it's gonna hurt me. It's not gonna hurt you. I mean, jeez, and oh, don't even get me. So anyway, yeah. direct me, because otherwise, I can go. On, I can keep talking about this. No, this is good.
0: This is good, so. and I, especially the part about urban renewal. I mean, that has really cemented. A horrible legacy for not just our city, but a lot of American cities. And it's really important to remember, especially in this moment of Brianna Taylor and David McAtee and celebrating what's so great about African-American heritage in, in Louisville. I mean, African-American Heritage Month is coming up. It's so important to remember that that is really structural racism right there. The reason, yes. the reason for this urban renewal was fear of black people and wanting to segregate the races. And it's really it's really been cemented into our infrastructure here in Louisville. It
1: is, it is. I, I would encourage people to look at the U of photo archives. Yeah. Because there are all of these great images of Walnut Street. Walnut Street is now oh Muhammad gosh. Ali Boulevard. Yeah. Walnut Street was the black, downtown for the black community, Black Broadway. Yeah, um, you know, six and six in Muhammad Ali, six and Walnut. That was where all those businesses were. Yeah. And there's only one extent, one building that's still standing. It's the River City Bank building. That outside uh-huh. is a, is a facade. The original building from the 1800s is underneath it. Wow. But you know that that facades around it, and they can't take it off. It would destroy the building. And I know about this from sculptor Ed Hamilton. Ed Hamilton did an activity with the kids in our program last year, and he was talking that his parents had a barber shop. I think his dad had barbershop that was there in that building or nearby it. And he's yeah. like, that's like the last building that's standing from the old, you know, center of black community in yep. ninth street, you know, ninth street used to be a two lane road. It used to be a normal street. Right. <laughs> they <laughs> widened it to create that barrier. That was yeah. intentional, you know, and people might say like, well, you know, how could you plan that? How could you make it intentional? It was intentional. I mean, part of it is, yes, they wanted freeway access to downtown, but part of it is like, we're going to put it right here, mm-hmm. right in the middle. If you <laughs> notice, there's these two historical black churches. There's one that's vacant and is a gorgeous building. And I don't know what the plan is for but there should be a plan for oh, it. Oh, that's awful. And then on the other side, there's another one. So you can see 9th Street was sort of like the middle of that of that community. And then, of course, what did they do? They tore down all of the—in the 1940s and 1950s, buildings from the 1880s and 1890s, as ornate and beautiful as they were, were considered slumish. They weren't modern, you know. They didn't have contained climate-controlled systems. You know, right, there was no ventilation, right. whatever. They just they bulldozed all of it to yeah. build Beecher Terrace, and now we found that Beecher Terrace doesn't work. Yeah, you know, and <laughs> that was akin to putting people in barracks. Yeah, it really was. And yeah. now they're what are they doing? They're tearing it down. To make the neighborhood look more like it used to. Mm, mm-hmm. Okay, so... Mm.
0: It's, it's, it's awful. And the other thing about the car culture, and this is the last point we have time for, unfortunately, but you were talking about how, how different it is in Europe where people are on foot. Being on foot or being in public transit with other people you have to learn how to deal with these other people. You interact with all kinds of people. And it's the complete opposite. When you're in your car, you walled yourself off, you get, you know, from garage right. to garage, right? And you don't have to deal with all those people. And it creates a very different mindset. And you can, you can see it today.
1: Well, Totoro rides the bus. He rides, Todor works downtown and he rides the bus. But here's what people don't realize about TARC is like, when you're on a TARC bus, people are keeping to themselves, you yeah, know, like most true. people are on their phones, listening to their headphones. That's true. You know, you get some interesting people and it's, it's an opportunity for them especially if they're if they feel isolated it's an opportunity for them to socialize yeah. what makes people what makes americans uncomfortable is they can't control the socialization factor yeah they're stuck on the bus if they if somebody starts talking to them they don't want that person to talk to them they can't do anything about yeah, it yeah. you know in europe if somebody doesn't want to talk to you they're like stop talking to me you know it's like they're used to it they know how to address it yeah. it's not nice you know but at least like they're they're directing up front about it yeah i never experienced that because i spoke bulgarian people wanted to ask me all these questions yeah, that's so awesome. i was like don't talk on the bus they're gonna know you know so like, if he's sitting there on my phone and then, like, my headphones in, so I wouldn't have talked to anybody. Cause then it's like, well, what do you think about Bulgarian culture? I mean, it's like the same question every time. Yeah. Oh, how do you like Bulgarian girls? And it's like, <laughs> oh, God, I don't even want to dress this one. I don't want to take this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was, okay. So I would occasionally take pictures on the tram. And people thought that was weird. But For I the mean, blog. it's like, whatever. Yeah. I'm an American. I'm already weird. It's just like, let's just up the weird factor. So, you know, I'm taking little notes on my notepad, taking some pictures. And this grandma, she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, well, and I was like, and at that point, i had these little cards made up. That had the the website, and I was like, "Well, I'm writing an English language blog about all of the public transit in Sofia," and they thought that was weird. But they, I, you know, it, it gave them an answer. And then she's like, she's like, "I would like to give you a card," and it was this like chaga singer. So chaga is like poppy country music, but Ugh. Bulgarian country music. So it's like it's all very artificial, but like, and the girls all are just like lots of makeup. So she's like, "This is my daughter." She's like, "I would like you to have her card." She's like, "And here's her phone number." She's like. Oh, classic card! It's a home. Classic. Can't remember name. Nellie? Something? I don't know. She wasn't. She wasn't an A-list Chaga star. She was like a C-list Chaga star. (laughs) Either way,
0: you have her card. I got her card. That's awesome. That's a great fun story to end on. Unfortunately, we're all out of time. Patrick Early, it's been such a treat talking to you about serving in Bulgaria as a Peace Corps volunteer.
1: Thanks. I haven't talked about a lot of stuff in a long time. It's it's funny to think about. But yeah. If I have one. All right. So Peace Corps changed my life. It, and it wasn't just like there was one moment. It was all the moments I was there. It was the culmination of it all. And, and just being forced to live outside my culture, be open minded to the differences of others. Peace Corps is one of those things where you go thinking you're going to impact the people that you're working with, but right. really you're impacted more so ever than they ever yeah. will be. Yeah. You know, there, I'm sure there are things that I, that I offered to the kids I worked with, there was some knowledge I was able to pass on, but I didn't change their culture or who they were as individuals, you know, on a a massive scale, you know, and sometimes people get those, they have one set of expectations and then they show up into something completely different. So, but for me, you know, the experiences shaped who I was. And so, you know, for anyone that's considering becoming a Peace Corps volunteer, I would say, you know, it's, it's going to be something that's going to enrich your own life more so than you're going to give back. And I can't imagine what my life would be like if I had never done it, you know, and I just feel grateful I was able to go to Bulgaria, thanks to my friend Ganka, who I still see who lives here in town. That's awesome. You know, I think that she was the reason why i ended up going you know in the end but it's 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 such a valuable experience you know and i think that you know right now it's it's a scary time to travel and people aren't able to go places and so there's a lot of like you know staying at home and and that's going to change you know and i think that you know it'll be good to get out helping me see different people in different parts of the world it changes the way i view things here now and and i think that's really valuable and we need more of that
0: All right. Great note to end on. We will be right back with your community action calendar. So stay tuned here on Forward Radio. And we're back here on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg on Forward Radio, your community radio station, WFMPLP Louisville, broadcasting from the top of the historic Habern building at 106.5 FM. And maybe you're listening to our live stream online at forwardradio.org where we encourage you to become a part of our community radio station. Either chip in a few dollars to keep us on the air, become a member today, or chip in your labor and your talents behind the microphones or behind the scenes to sustain us with volunteer power. That's how we make this radio magic every day here in Louisville. Well, Speaking of days of the week, it is time to get your calendars out and your pencils sharpened and get ready to take action for sustainability. A lot happening this week, so let's dive right in, my friends. Coming up Tuesday the 19th from 3 to 4 p.m., the University of Louisville is hosting a webinar on surface water monitoring for COVID. Now, this is some really interesting research being organized by the Crystal Lee Brown and Virome Institute at U of L that's hosting this webinar on surface water research and water monitoring, made possible by... By the support of the Allesley Brown The Second Family Foundation and Newman's Own Foundation, Kentucky Waterways Alliance is monitoring two sections of Beargrass Creek for evidence of SARS CoV 2, the virus that causes COVID 19 because of their proximity to sewer overflow sites near Big Rock Park and Joe Creason Park in Louisville. During heavy rains, sewer overflows occur when stormwater and wastewater combine to spill into local waterways. KWA, in partnership with UofL, is assessing if and how much viral material can be found in surface water and sediment near these sewer overflow sites. KWA and UofL School of Urban and Public Affairs are leading co-immunities surface water study. The team includes UofL Masters in Sustainability Director, Dr. Tamara Sluss, and KW intern, Cullen Hunter, who are testing surface water and sediment in Beargrass Creek for the presence of SARS-CoV-2. Now, you can find the link to, to register at, for the event on Thursday the 19th at 3 p.m., and you can find that at louisville.edu sustainability under events. Also on Tuesday evening, virtually at 7 p.m. on the 19th, the Greater Louisville Sierra Club will be holding their monthly program this year focused on lobbying the Kentucky legislature. We'll kick off the new year with a Kentucky legislature informational presentation from Lane Boldman, Executive Director of the Kentucky Conservation Committee, who you heard on this program just last week. We'll hear what's happening in Frankfurt during the 2021 Kentucky General Assembly and what we can do to support important legislation for a healthier Kentucky. KCC, of course, is a state-based conservation and policy collaborative, which advocates for protection, restoration, and sustainable use of natural resources for the equitable benefit of all citizens of the Commonwealth. Lane Boldman is a longtime environmental leader in Kentucky and former member of the Sierra Club's board of directors. You can find the link to join this great session on Thursday the 19th at 7 p.m. at louisvillesierraclub.org. And we want to thank the Louisville Sierra Club for being up. proud community partner of us here at Forward Radio. Coming up on Wednesday the 20th, it's the next in the Urban Agriculture Coalition's Public Orchard Pruning wor- Winter Workshops. Oh, man, we had a great one out at the People's Garden uh, in out near Shawnee Park just uh, this last weekend. Despite the, the snowy weather, it was a delightful, satisfying day of pruning an orchard that is open to the public and really needed some love. You get your cold weather gear out and let's prune fruit trees together. Proud Ford Radio Community partner, the Urban Ag Coalition is helping neighbors to prune the community orchards throughout the city again this year, come out and learn how to prune fruit trees and help maintain the trees in our community orchards. They'll provide pruning tools. Uh, you can also bring your own. And you can sign up for as many dates as you like at tinyurl.com orchards2020. Even if you don't get signed up, here's the schedule. Wednesday the 20th, they'll be out at the Americana World Community Center's Orchard. That's 1 to 3 p.m. this Wednesday the 20th. And then this weekend on Sunday the 24th, they'll be at the Portland Orchard Project from 2 to 5 p.m they'll be returning there again the following weekend saturday the 30th from two to five and it all wraps up on friday uh, on sunday february 7th at lots of food on portland avenue you can learn more and sign up for the dates you want to come out and learn and get active for our community fruit at tinyurl.com orchards 2020 Now, Kentuckians for the Commonwealth has issued a call to get involved in their work with the 2021 Kentucky General Assembly. We're navigating a less accessible 2021 session due to the pandemic, and they need your help to make our voices heard. You can search the full list of virtual and in-person events taking place at cutt.ly.com. Slash KYGA21 for Kentucky General Assembly, CUTT.ly slash KYGA21. And you can find full details at facebook.com slash Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, all spelled out. Uh, but it does kick off this Wednesday, January 20th from 4 to 6 p.m. with a phone bank focused on racial justice. Now, you can join in virtually via Zoom. In KFTC's vision statement, it says we are working for a day when discrimination is wiped out by our laws, habits, and hearts. That vision depends on us taking, talking with fellow Kentuckians about the need for major changes to our health care system and our criminal justice system that intentionally and ruthlessly hurt black bodies. Join us to get the word out about bills that get us a step closer to racial justice. You'll need an Internet connection and a telephone for this phone bank on Wednesday, the 20th from 4 to 6 p.m. Events continue with a phone bank on economic justice. uh, Same time, 4 p.m. on February 4th. Uh, And then on Monday, the 15th. They'll be at the state capitol with a with Love Kentucky, a day of action at the Capitol from noon to 2 p.m. on the 15th of February. And the 18th of February, there'll be a virtual lobby day for a healthy democracy, and it'll wrap up on February 24th with the phone banking day on voting rights. Again, you can learn more at on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. Also on Wednesday, after that, from 6 to 8 p.m., it's the next monthly Green Drinks with Louisville Grows this month on Wednesday the 20th at 6 p.m., all virtually. The Louisville Sustainability Council's Green Drinks on third Wednesday's offer after work is a casual networking opportunity for students and professionals across many sectors to come together to connect and discuss sustainable initiatives in our community. This month's featured organization will be Louisville Grows. Lisa Detlinger, Program Director, will discuss the their upcoming community garden grant workshops and toolkit. Louisville Grows' urban agriculture program aims to increase availability, quality, and quantity of fresh food and at lower costs to create a healthier food security system in our community. Through their annual fundraiser Seeds and Starts sale, they are able to offer the community garden grants each year to support capacity building endeavors. So, pour yourself a drink and learn how you can become involved. Find more information and the link to join at louisvillesustainabilitycouncil.org or you can find it on Facebook Green Drinks Louisville now coming up Thursday January 21st at noon the third Thursday forum returns virtually now with Sadiqa Reynolds focused on police power and privilege Fellowship of Reconciliation and Swords of Justice are reviving this monthly Third Thursday lunches as a virtual event. It happened via Zoom conference and they've named it the Third Thursday Forum. The first one will occur this Thursday at noon and the speaker will be Sadiqa Reynolds, President and CEO of the Louisville Urban League. Given the turbulent year in our city, we're pleased to begin our program in January featuring the insights of Sadiqa Reynolds, who is such an important advocate for civil rights. Former District Judge Sadiqa Reynolds was the first woman to lead the Louisville Urban League. Her work on jobs, justice, education, health, and housing has garnered the attention and coverage of CNN, Fox News, The New York Times, and other national media outlets. Reynolds was the first African-American to clerk for the Kentucky Supreme Court and also the first African-American to serve Kentucky as Inspector General. She has also run a private practice handling criminal defense matters and representing abused, neglected, and dependent children. Reynolds was Louisville Magazine's 2017 personal of the Year, the 2018 National Urban League Woman of Power, and the Audrey Grievous Community Enrichment Award recipient. The National Bar Association also named her a Gertrude E. Rush Award recipient for her justice and advocacy work. You won't want to miss Sadika. She's amazing. Check it out this Thursday, the 21st at noon. You can find the link to register at Facebook.com slash SOJN. Lou, L-O-U, that's Sowers of Justice Network, S-O-J-N-L-O-U. Also want to remind you that coming up this Friday, the 22nd, it's the next session of the Kentucky Conservation Committee's annual meeting and legislative summit that is taking place virtually this year, and it's all free, taking place the next two consecutive Fridays from 11 a.m. to 1230 p.m. And as we mentioned last week, this second session on the 22nd will feature land conservation and biodiversity issues. Among many topics, they'll be discussing the federal 30 by 30 land conservation initiative to preserve 30 percent of the world's lands and oceans by 2030. You can learn how this initiative ties to efforts in Kentucky to acquire and preserve land corridors, plus initiatives to build support for corridor infrastructure that connects our wild lands, provides resilience for biodiversity, protects our wildlife and prevents expansion expensive vehicle collisions. Again, the presenters for this session will include representatives on initiatives to support wildland corridors, plus allies who successfully passed a wildland infrastructure legislation in Virginia. This session will also include representatives from Kentucky land conservation groups and some state lawmakers. Guests will include Senator Robin Webb, Senator Jimmy Higdon, uh, Greg Abernathy of the Kentucky Natural Lands Trust, Susan Holmes from the Wild Lands Network, and Misty Bose from Wild Virginia, who you heard on this program last week. You can learn more and register for the legislative summit at kyconservation.org. And coming up Friday, uh, the 22nd, also at, uh, at 11 a.m. to noon, UofL is kicking off their Sustainability Roundtable Series this week. It takes place virtually now, and Forward Radio's own Brian Barnes will be launching the Spring Series this Friday with a conversation about engaging the community and using the campus as a living laboratory for applied sustainability learning and research. Dr. Barnes is a lecturer in philosophy. He's also chair of the Engagement Committee of UofL's Sustainability Council, and he's director of UofL's Eco Reps Program and Community Composting Project. You won't want to miss this dynamic conversation about the myriad possibilities for connecting campus and community to create a sustainability revolution right here in Louisville. No pre-registration is required, and you can just find the link to join at louisville.edu sustainability under events. And lastly, wanted to let you know that uh Kentuckian for the Commonwealth political education series begins this week, and they invite you to participate in the first unit on Growing Together. In order to get to know each other and the staff leading this series, they'll be meeting on Zoom this Friday the 22nd at 7 p.m. As a reminder, what this series about, KFTC is launching this political education curriculum to learn from abolitionist perspectives about defunding the police and moving forward our vision for all people to enjoy a better quality of life. The series is going to cover definitions of policing, defunding police, abolition, divesting and investing, and much more. They'll also talk about conflict transformations, the history of policing, alternatives to prison and policing, and much more. But before we dive into the difficult topics, Unit 1 will be used to ground ourselves in why we want to learn and why we're here together They'll be sharing terminology and techniques that will be used to communicate with one another throughout the series. There's no required reading or theoretical background knowledge needed for this meeting. You can just come as you are. And you can find the link to sign up at Facebook.com slash Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, all spelled out. That's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have a great week. And I will be back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well.
1: Guaguira Guantanamera, Guaguira Guantanamera, Guaguira Guantanamera.